for most of us, realizing we're an addict and alcoholics, one of the best things that's ever happened to us in our lives. Because then there's a solution. Before that, there's just unhappiness. John Somerville grew up with high-achieving, affluent parents, but that didn't protect him from becoming a victim of sexual abuse. He turned to alcohol at a very young age to cope with trauma and eventually developed a $1,000 a day cocaine habit. Yet, John excelled in school and went on to be successful in the finance world. Still, his life was a mess, and he failed to find true recovery after entering treatment multiple times. Today, John runs a recovery center and sober living homes called Tallgrass. He's sharing his remarkable journey on this episode of Grieving Out Loud. John, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I can't wait to get into this conversation with you. I've just had the pleasure of getting to know you over the past couple of months or so, after we both took part in an event that raised money for our organizations, you for Tallgrass and me with Emily's Hope. So thank you so much for being here. It's a great privilege to join you today. Thank you. I know you have struggled with addiction and it got pretty severe when you were much younger. How many years have you been in recovery? Uh, 23. That's years a long in recovery. time. It, it wasn't a quick fix. You know, my first meeting was 36 years ago. But yeah, I, uh, I am an addict and an alcoholic. So it took 10 years of maybe trying, wanting to get help before you, or get into recovery before it actually... Well, I had 12 years of pretending that was my goal. It, my version of, of getting help is that I attended many times. I decided once. Made the decision. Correct. And, and the decision that I made was that I couldn't start. I didn't know anything past that. Went to a work Christmas party. We were walking in. My wife, who was pregnant with our second child, and therefore the designated driver, uh, said, why don't you hand me the keys? And I said, I just won't drink tonight. And she said, I know you cannot drink at all. Why don't you have one? And of course, I had a very self-righteous response to that. Um, didn't she know that I could control myself? And uh, about 29 beers later, which is a beer can pyramid, you know, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, and one still in your hand. Um, about 29 beers later, I remember walking sideways toward the truck and handing her the keys and saying, okay, I'm done. I have no idea why that time mattered. But the decision that I made was that I couldn't start. I hadn't started to heal yet. I hadn't started to deal with any of my, my anxiety, my shame, my fear, my guilt, my rage. I hadn't dealt with any of that. But in that moment, I knew that reaching for a drink or, or any sort of anesthesia, essentially, um, was something I couldn't control and had to stop. So something just shifted in you after, I, I'm assuming, years of pain and suffering that you brought on or was brought on through your addiction. Yes. Well, you know, like, like a friend of mine once said, if you're so smart, how come you're so unhappy? Um, I, had, uh, I, have, I have some big advantages. As an addict and an alcoholic, I know why. I know what I was anesthetizing. And a lot of people, you know, I will talk to people with some frequency, we're like, hey, you know, I had a great family. My parents were fabulous. I don't have any idea why I can't why I can't stop using or drinking or whatever it is. And I don't have that. I'm an I am an anesthetizing drunk and addict. And you knew why? I know exactly why. I don't want to feel, and I don't want to feel because I had no agency as a child. Um, I had no control over my body, no control over my environment. After years and years of rampant sexual abuse, um, I, I had no worth at all. Um, it was all a friend of the family. When I went to my parents the first time at about 1974, so I was seven years old, and they weren't prepared to hear that. So then it became, how dare you? How dare you say that about someone? Because if you look back to the 70s, people weren't really openly talking about this kind of thing or wanting well, to accept that it went on. It's awareness campaigns matter. You know, your awareness campaign with Emily's Hope matters. The awareness campaign of, of taking addiction from being a character flaw to an actual illness and, and a, a disease matters. 
Um, and, you know, 50 years ago, child abuse was impossible, you know, especially not, you know, at our house. And so it just, I just wasn't heard. Because um, people also need to know a little bit about your background and that you grew up in a, a highly educated home. You had lots of opportunities. I had every opportunity. Yet I mean, this still went on. <laughs> yet, and it, it still went on. And, it, and you know, it, it, my family, my parents have no guilt in that at all. They were not perpetrators by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and they were providing every opportunity that I was shrugging off and or failing because I did not deserve to be there. I did not deserve to succeed. Um, because in years of, of physical and sexual abuse, I have no heroic moment. I never stood up for myself. You were a child. I was a six foot, one inch, 200 pound child by the end of it. And I, and I, well, but you were groomed and conditioned. I, and absolutely. All, and of, those all of the things. And I, and intellectually, I understand that completely. Emotionally, that's a thing that has taken, I don't know, I'm 54 and a half years old, 54 and a half years to get my head around. Um, so, so I, I was an anesthetizing drunk who eventually had to learn that the anesthesia was making me less happy, not more happy. That living in my rage and my fear and my anxiety and the separation that that created, which I considered a safety net, you know, being drunk or or whatever it was, was safer than not. Because if it happened while I was drinking, then it wasn't my fault. If it happened while I was drinking, then it wasn't. I wasn't responsible for that. And so that was that was my safety net versus. You could absolve yourself of all personal. Well, I could absolve myself, and also, you know, people will give you plenty of space when when, when you're that guy in the corner. Um, there's just a lot less risk socially when you burn the bridge before you get to it instead of after. And so I engaged in that aggressively. What um, age did you start drinking? I started drinking when I was 13, but I sp started smoking marijuana when I was nine. Nine? Yeah, the summer between fourth and fifth grade. And I think it's so much more common now for kids to st start smoking marijuana than when you were nine. Oh, yeah. We were outliers. Uh-huh. Um, one of my grade school friends, older brothers, was a dealer. Um, and so theft and chicanery um, went a long way. So there were, I assume there were lots of other substances as well throughout the years when oh, yeah. you were using. Yeah, well, and so I started having orthopedic problems about that same time. And so then there was a an ocean of Darvon and Darvacet and Tylenol-3 and... Um, Painkillers. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that all addiction stems from trauma? No. No. No, I think that... Because I do rack my brain with my daughter wondering, you know, I, I went through a divorce when she was young. Her other siblings are okay. Millions of people have parents who are divorced. I often think, was that the trauma that led to her addiction? Or is there something else that I don't know about that happened along the way? Or or was it from peers and some incidents that happened her freshman well, year in high school? I, 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 you know, I think as those of us who love those who suffer from substance use disorder or who have lost someone from substance use disorder always think of the why. Well, yeah, you, we, we want something way more tangible. We want a thing, you know, whose fault is this? How did this happen? I think that, you know, 10, 12% of us are highly susceptible just in our genetic and, and biological response to whatever it is. And I think that the, let me say, let me take back my no. Let me say that it doesn't have to be an understandable or externally perceptible trauma. It doesn't have to be, oh, you know, mine was cataclysmic. Well, it's huge. I mean, that's yeah, huge. Mine Sexual, was cataclysmic. physical abuse, huge. Yeah. But I think that, you know, getting picked last on the team every time at recess, you know, all, all the jokes that, that the kids think are funny about things you can't control, whether, you know, you're a child and, and your shape isn't their shape 
or your eyes aren't their color eyes or whatever it is, you know, any, anything that causes that separation can, can trigger it. So it's how somebody internalizes whatever's going on externally, right? Like some kids can just brush that off or it doesn't bother them. And some sensitive kids, it really bothers. Do you think every person who suffers from substance use disorder is extremely sensitive? Well, I have a theory about that. No, you don't think so. Well, sure. I I think that the addicts that I know, um, and I'm around them every day, all day, uh, tall grass, the addicts that I know are heartfelt in general. Um, They're emotionally generous. Their heart is on their sleeve. One of their biggest problems is that they love so much with so little capacity to transmit that or communicate that in a way that they understand or that can be understood by others, that their heart is always taking hits. And so I think they're very sensitive. I think that you know, it, it, there's a lot of irony in the fact that we treat addicts and alcoholics like they're not as smart as the average person, but I think that they're, my experience of addicts and alcoholics is that they're at least average intelligence. You know, just personally, I think Emily was a gifted um, student, gifted, uh, you know, academically, and she was very sensitive, and sensitive from the day she was born. (laughs) And I I often think that that has something that the world is just too harsh for many people who turn to substances. Well, exactly. People interpret all the feedback that they're getting as separation. All the feedback that they're getting is isolating, you know. And it, and and unfortunately, it doesn't matter really when 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 you're hurt or when you're sensitive. The style of the feedback isn't the issue, you know. I when I was a kid, I was terrified of being of of being told how handsome I was. I was ter- terrified of being told good things because that's how I that, that's how things went wrong. That's why you were the target well, of the predator. Yeah. I mean, I was a good-looking 10-year-old kid, 5-year-old kid. I weighed 48 pounds when I was 5 years old. And the idea that that, that stature of person is in someone's sights is astonishing to me. But it, And so any praise or criticism is separation to the person who's who's already sensitized to that. Did you ever have a chance to confront... Your abuser? No, I mean, I, I, lots of chances that I that. Well, I, as an adult, no. As an adult, yeah. No, I, I've never, I never saw him again. So no, and that's not important to me anymore. And was it, it important? It never, to you it never was. It never was. Never, never was because I can't, I cannot accept that person's dysfunction as my own, and I cannot accept that his dysfunction could somehow heal me. I don't need him to admit to anything. I don't need him to say, golly, I shouldn't have done that. He's profoundly dysfunctional. And I cannot accept his dysfunction as my own. His view of me has no bearing at all because he never saw me once as a human being or he wouldn't have done what he did. And I cannot hinge any part of my recovery, my joy, my happiness on somehow that person saying or doing the right thing. I wish everybody could hear that because I think we all have people in our lives who've heard us or who their view of the world is is the only thing that they see, right? And they are never going to see someone else's view of the world or what they've done to that person. And so many of us walk around wishing that we could get recognition for that, right? I think what you're saying is so healthy. Well, thank you. Took you a long um, time to get there. Took me a long time to get there. It, you know, it's, it's part of the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you, in the ninth step, when you actually go and make amends to people who whom you've harmed, except for where to do so would cause further harm. So you go out and you make amends. But one of the things about making amends is you can't make an amends with an expectation. So you can't go say I'm sorry to someone and then hinge your your sobriety or your survival on that person accepting your apology. They don't have to. And that and, and that same line of thinking works with someone who's hurt you. If you go to that person and throw all your power before them 
so they can accept or reject that, first off, it's a spectacular risk. And it's someone who's, who you already know is unhealthy. So why are you putting that in front of them for them to hurt you again? Not part of my recovery. Uh, that sounds incredibly healthy. I just, I think about everything that you've been through in all of the years where you were using and then maybe making surface attempts to get into recovery and and not working. Um, there was just like this, you said that almost like a switch went off for you. Yeah. I, I wish that would happen for more people, but I also really worry because today's substances are so deadly that we all, we often talk about, you know, you have to hit rock bottom or you can't make somebody come to this conclusion that they need to do what you did and get into recovery well, and follow a program. I, uh, I don't believe in rock bottom. No. Um, I, well, I think rock bottom today is, de- is death. I, I think that that's as good a definition as any. Well, because all, what are you waiting for otherwise? I mean, well, plus with all the fentanyl. Why, why does someone have to provide evidence to you that they're unhappy enough to start? Uh, I think we can always reach out to someone. I don't think that – I don't think lightning struck or, or some miracle happened other than in that moment I realized that I wasn't getting what I wanted. I didn't have any idea what I did want, but I knew that what I was getting was not what I wanted. Which is an effective conversation, you know. When we when we go out and talk to people who are struggling, it's well, okay. Are you getting what you want from what you're doing? And that that doesn't put a burden on them of knowing the solution. That doesn't put the burden on them of, well, golly, you're right. I should really you know change my whole life and start a twelve step. No, not, none of that. Let's just start slow. Are you getting what you want from what you're doing? of the time, the answer is no, I'm not, but I don't know what else to do. And that's fine. You know, we'd be happy to talk to you about that. Well, and in your own case, you know, you had a lovely mother and a loving wife and people who really wanted the best for you, right? And you didn't want the best for yourself. And I think we have so many people at the time, we, when you you were active in your addiction, those of us who, who have, who love those who are suffering from this disease of the brain. I think oftentimes, especially moms, we think we're so much more powerful than we actually are. Like we don't have control of another human being. So this is my roundabout way of asking you the question, could anybody have forced you to get better? Could anybody have done anything to make a difference for things to change earlier for you? I don't think that any stone was unturned. The answer is, I couldn't hear them yet. They were certainly as loud as they needed to be. I had the privilege of knowing that I was deeply loved, even though I didn't think I deserved it, I knew it. In fact, I sort of resented the fact that they would love me when I didn't. So I had that privilege, but the, but the answer is that I have no capacity to hear them in a way that is effective. I think that's something that would be very good for people to keep in mind because until somebody is ready to hear you or can hear you, it is like shouting down an empty well, right? You know, I've I've always hated the phrase when the student is ready, the teacher will appear Um, because it was usually used in times when I was the student and I wasn't ready and the teacher was standing in front of me telling me when the student is ready, the teacher will appear and I was messing something up. Um, but it's really true. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And so when someone's ready to hear it, and which is one of the reasons that we so strongly encourage people to reach out to the recovery community. You know, one of the big advantages that Tallgrass has is no one's ever calling in there and talking to someone who hasn't been where they are. Every single employee is someone living in recovery. And so we, because we, we're not going to lose the first argument, which is you don't know how I feel. You know, you've never been here. You learned this in a book, whatever it is. And I have used all of those same arguments talking to people who are trying to help me. Just to start, just to start the conversation, talk to someone who's been there because maybe they can hear them. And we're not, you know, I I would never pretend that we're the solution for every addict. In fact, if they're not medically and, and emotionally stable, 
you know, we, we refer them out because that's not our bailiwick. But you have to start the conversation with someone where the addict or alcoholic can hear them. Tell me a little bit about Tallgrass and the approach that you take there. Tallgrass is a is built on the on really on the back of the Sioux Falls recovery community. It's an immersive twelve step program run by people who are working immersive twelve step programs. Um, every employee is is an addict or an alcoholic. Every employee is working a twelve step program. Has a sponsor, goes to meetings, works the steps, um, is actively engaged in their own recovery. When someone comes into Tallgrass, there's no sense of judgment or or anything negative. You know, for most of us, realizing we're an addict and alcoholics, one of the best things that's ever happened to us in our lives. Because then there's a solution. Before that, there's just unhappiness. You know, I, and denial. And, and, so and much denial. I mean, denial. Um, you know, blame for everybody else. Narcissism. You know, we were talking before about sensitivity, but one thing I did see in my own daughter was sort of a turn, and it may have coincided with using substances, uh, but sort of a turn um, inward where like this narcissism suddenly appeared. Well, addiction and alcoholism are a disease of narcissism. You know, we, we become the only person on earth. And everyone is either talking about us, neglecting us, or abusing us. Um, even when they're just out leading their own lives, we know that guy's talking about us. You know, we're, we've become so socially distanced and so socially alienated that, that while we sit and interact with no one in a room full of people, we're pretty sure that every single one of them is actually talking about us, judging us, assessing us, because we're the only person in the world. And, you know, one of the things we, we say with a smile on our face a lot is, hey, it's not about you. And frankly, when the world's not about you, there's a lot less stress. You know, there's seven and a half billion other people who can carry the load instead of just you. Yeah, I, I wonder how that, because we talk about the sensitivity, you know, that was their trauma. Um, are people who suffer from substance use disorder highly sensitive people? But at the same time, there's, there's the narcissism, which almost seems contradictory to the sensitivity. Oh, I don't think so. I can sit and think all about myself and have you hurt my feelings at the same time. <laughs> okay. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's hopefully it becomes being sensitive to the to the to loving others and, and others needs and being able to communicate our love for them. It becomes that. But while we're in the in the grip of the disease, while we're using and while we're not getting help and while we're not a part of the commu- recovery community, and while we have that sense of, of isolation and fear and shame, then it's narcissism. It's looking inward and having everyone in the world hurting our feelings all the time. And Tallgrass is based on the 12-step program. Yes. And I know there's a lot of different ideas throughout the recovery community now of what works, what doesn't work. You know, this may work for one person. This may work for another person. Do you think the 12-step program can work for most people? Yes, most people. In the uh, big book, of A, it says, rarely have we seen someone fail who is willing to take these simple steps. When people fail, and we, our guests, you know, some of our guests fail. And when they fail, and then they, they'll come back, and we'll talk to them about it. They don't necessarily re-enroll, but they'll come back out for lunch or whatever. And, and they'll say, well, I, you know, I had a relapse. And it, it's, it's pretty simple. They stopped working. The, they stopped doing the program. So when did you stop talking to your sponsor? Well, you know, that guy kept saying, okay. And when did you stop going to meetings? Well, you know, the people at those meetings. Um, so they're making a decision. You know, they're making a decision that, okay, in a couple of weeks, I'll have loosed all the chains of this program and then I can go back and drink or use or whatever it is because I was more comfortable in my failure than I am in my success. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because I often wonder, you know, not, not having suffered from this myself, like you, you're getting better, you're doing better. Why would you want to go back to that? Obviously, you suffered. You were unhappy using because eventually it all leads to pain, right? It's, it's the road to pain. Yet people... Do. But the pain is ever present. And so when 
when people relapse in general, it's because they were more comfortable failing in a way they understand. You know, failure became one of my most powerful assets. You know, I could fail my way through the holidays. Um, and it gave and it gave me power. And people you stop know. expecting things of you as well. They stop expecting things. They clear out of the way. You know, it's like Moses crossing the Red Sea. There's the, the sea parts and you get your way because of the tremendous anxiety you can cause in others by failing yourself. You know, that power over others, that power to fail, that power to to dominate the social landscape with our own anxiety, our boisterousness, our false bravado, all those things, the humility to step back from that and realize that you were hurting people and realize you were hurting yourself, it's hard on the first try. It's hard on the second try. Yeah, it must be so hard to come face-to-face for people, the number of people that they've hurt. Well, step four is a fearless and searching moral inventory. Which is not the blame game. It's not, you know, my fearless and searching moral inventory is not just trying to make me feel like I'm a terrible person or I've done terrible things. Mostly it's to help me understand what resentments, shames, fears do I carry that still impact my behavior. And so, and, you know, a, a fear stated has less power. So you write it out. And then in the fifth step, you share it with someone. And it's not just someone. It's actually, there are three parts to that. First off, you share it with yourself, another human being, and the higher power of your understanding. And the reason you share it with yourself is because this is a program of honesty. And most of us haven't been honest. We've been deceiving ourselves about everything in the world. And so to actually say those, to actually recognize those character faults in ourselves or those resentments, actually recognize the negatives that are driving our behavior is incredibly powerful. And so the reason it says that, what's well, one of the reasons it says with yourself. And then you share it with another human being to figure out that they're not going to spontaneously combust when they hear who you've been. Right, that because, shame. Yeah, that shame. The is, shame. And, yeah. and you realize that they, you know, they don't judge you. They don't, they don't walk you through the process of feeling terrible about it or anything like that. They listen. That's all. They listen. And you realize that that person didn't blow up. You know, you didn't turn them into dust, whatever it is. It didn't happen because actually you're you're not that awful a person. Um, and then you share it with the higher power of your understanding because you are going to ask that higher power to remove these defects of character. You know, they, you know there's this cliche saying secrets make us sick, right? And yeah. I think it's amazingly courageous for you to share your own personal story and what happened to you as a child and do you share that quite freely? I mean, you're sharing it with me here on the podcast. So I started volunteering at Tallgrass in June of 2008. I've spoken there monthly then for 13 years. I've probably shared that with, you know, 1,500 people that way. I share it when I speak publicly. It's important for people to know that those things happen. It's important for people to know that 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 sort of childhood can take an ugly turn and and, and become what I have been. Um, but it's also important for people to know that it doesn't have to be the last definition of you. It doesn't have to be the last thing that happened. You know, that is not the end of my story. That's valuable. Because we talk a lot about, you know, in the promises of AA and the promises of the 12 steps, we will find joy like we've never found. And that is true. I've, you know, when I, and I, I haven't, I've been spoken to my sponsors since yesterday, but when I'm, when I'm actively engaged in working a 12 step program and actively engaged in the community and actively finding what healthy ways to communicate with the people that I love, that I love them, that is a joy I've never known. When you started substances so young, you know, nine, I mean, decades of using substances to numb your pain, I, it has to, I mean, two decades, more than two decades of recovery, you have a lot of life to live and figuring out who you are. and Yes, and frankly, a lot of time to make up for. Right. You know, start when you're nine, finish when you're 30. There's a lot of 
there's a lot of evidence out there that, that when we start anesthetizing ourselves, we stop maturing. Um, you know, a lot of your emotional development is stunted. Um, so there I was, 30, um, trying to figure out how to be an adult. And I have the great privilege of having been so healthfully and so well-loved by my spouse. And just profoundly lucky to be both held accountable by her, but also spectacularly supported not everybody can do that. Not everybody gets that. No. You know? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Is, and you're, how many years have you been married now? It'll be 30 in December. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure it's the best seven or eight years of her life. <laughs> um, yeah, profoundly lucky. I can't say that I, you know, conducted some big study and chose the right one. Um, I knew I was going to marry Katie when I'd known her for 10 minutes. Um, I went home and told my mother I'd met the one I'd marry. And just 35 months later, she agreed. Um, so she wasn't, she was a little, bit, a little more slow burn than I am. And I didn't, I didn't know anything other than that I was in love with this person. I didn't know anything about her. I didn't know anything about what our journey would be, certainly. Most people don't, especially knew, when they're young. And <laughs> I knew very little about myself. And the fact that, that, that she has found a way to help us grow through all of this has been really miraculous. I think so, yeah. Um, because so, so many bridges are often burned, you know, in active addiction, oh. that people wind up by themselves. I mean, their families have maybe done everything they can and have sort of thrown up their hands. The answer is sometimes it's time to stop. And we we, we had the conversation where... When I, you know, I stopped drinking in, in December of 97, and in, in April of 98, she came to the office and said, look, this this dry drunk thing you have going on, all the rage and understanding. Because you weren't working through your issues. I wasn't doing anything but being angry. But you weren't drinking. I was not drinking. I was super self-righteous about it. Don't you know I'm killing myself for you? And I, I said that to the back of her head as she walked away because she had delivered the message that we weren't going to live this way. It wasn't going to be John gets to be a raging dry drunk. And the rest of the world gets to tiptoe around me while I do nothing. So um, what happened after that? I went to the 10 o'clock at Southside. That's when you started getting involved in meetings. Yeah. Tallgrass relies on the, the 12-step recovery. Is there anything else, any other approach that you're taking there that you feel is very successful? One of the most important things we do is we, we have a mentor program, which is a lot like having a sponsor. Uh, it's just that a person is assigned to you. And in general, when they leave Tallgrass, they don't keep the same person. Some, some do. Um, we have mentors who are people in the recovery community who come in and one-on-one -on -one work through the first five, six, seven steps with our guests. It's a 30-day program. And 30 days um, is a sprint to step five. You're not going to get through all 12. You shouldn't get through all 12. Because, frankly, eight and nine, prepare a list of people to whom we owe amends and then actually be willing to go make amends to them except for to do so would cause further harm. That requires some fortitude. You're going to go have some super uncomfortable conversations with people. And they are not all going to go well and they're not all going to forgive you. And you cannot allow that to be your excuse to crawl back into the bottle. Um, so that's, that's a ways down the road. That's not a, that's not a, oh, we're going to do this in 30 days program. Um, but, but the mentors who walk them through the first five at a minimum five, sometimes up to seven steps, um, are incredibly valuable. All of our volunteers, you know, it's about 80% of our services are provided by volunteers. Uh, the volunteers come in and, and do the big book study. The volunteers come in and tell their own story. We have three different meetings that come in. In the evenings, three different meetings we go out to. And then you've expanded your sober living as well. And we have three sober living homes, 19 beds in the sober living homes. And the people in sober living, you know, they have to have a sponsor. They have to go to four 12-step meetings a week. They have to uh, have a job. And they, they have to be working and not just... You know, but in all aspects of their lives because they have to be self-sufficient because what we're doing is we're generating self-confidence 
you know, by being so in a sober environment and being and staying sober for up to well, however long they want to stay. We don't. There's no exit date. Hopefully, as their lives become more and more three dimensional, there are things about being a sober living that they'll want to put behind them, like a curfew every night, like no overnight guests, like you know, just all of the just, just the supervision. Eventually, they'll want to move past that. But we don't say, okay, you've been here a year, you got to go. Um, we have people who've succeeded for seven years in sober living and just moved out. Wow. For seven years. And, it, and you know, what a great resource for the other guests who move into the sober living homes. And the, and the sober living homes, of course, are also a part of the Sioux Falls recovery community because those four meetings a week they're going to are in the recovery community. Um, they're all invited back to, to all of our alumna are welcome at Tallgrass any time, essentially. When, when people relapse, do you see most people getting back into the 12-step program again, you know, wanting to, or, or do they stay in, re, in relapse for a while? Or does it depend on the person? For most of our guests, there is not a relapse. For those that do relapse, some just admit they don't want what we have, and that relapse is permanent. You know, mm-hmm. I've, I've taken that phone call. You know, I don't want what you have. I don't want to do it the way you do it. And frankly, you know, then we'll ask them what other resources we can point them toward. You know, if you don't want what we do, that's fine. There are other modalities, as they call it, to find a life supersedes your substance use disorder. That's available. We're not the only path. For people who, are, who have stayed connected to the recovery community, a lot of relapses are very short, a weekend, three days. And we just strongly encourage them to come right back, not enroll, come right back, just have lunch with us, stay for a meeting. Get connected again. Yeah, talk to a staff member. We will, you know, once again hand you the schedule for the Sioux Falls recovery community. We'll get you a ride to a meeting. We'll, we'll help you. We'll help you talk to your sponsor and, and – uh, and just clear away the the debris of that. Did you ever see yourself working in this area? No. I, I know you suffered from addiction, but... No, in fact... And you were in the financial world, right? I was a financial advisor for about 18 years. Didn't really propose to ever do anything else. I was on the board at Tallgrass. And after a particularly cantankerous meeting, president of the board came and asked me if I would just do it, you know, you think you're so smart, why don't you do it? Become executive director. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was a, a terrible idea. What were they thinking? That was on a Thursday. Between Thursday and the following Tuesday, um, somebody came in and bought my business. Wow. Um, Isn't that a I don't take a glass of water and throw it on the sidewalk <laughs> looking for God very often, but wow. Um, yeah. So I called back. I didn't realize that I would love it as much as I do. I didn't realize it would go as well as it has. Why do you love it? Um, because I work with people who are so heartfelt and so personally courageous every moment, putting themselves on the line for every phone call, every guest, every organization that contacts us, every family that contacts us. They bear, their, they bear themselves with, with such courage and so freely all of the time. It is the most beautiful thing I've ever sat through. And just to be a part of that and and to have that to look forward to every day, you know, talk about your bucket overflowing. It does all the time. I I sit in, the, in sort of the bullpen and listen to the phone calls come in, and very few of the phone calls are easy. <laughs> you know? Well, people are in crisis. People are in crisis and – a lot of them are not sober when they call. Or it's the family members who have the person sort of, you know, cornered or surrounded and they're calling and the person's not sober. And, and you're trying to have an effective, heartfelt conversation about how to change this person's life when it's A, not what they want, and B, they're pretty sure that you're not why. And I listen to these amazing people say, well, you know, when I was exactly where you are, Nine years ago, seven years ago, 13 years ago, 16 months ago, this is what I had to do. This is where my family was with me. And I listen to people 
give of themselves so much. But what a great privilege. And we do live on the, in the joy on the other side of the mountain. You know, these are people who are succeeding in recovery. And we have every expectation that our guests will do the same. What um, advice do you have for families dealing with someone who is in active use? Well, the, fir- the, the strongest advice I have is never stop communicating. Ever. Never stop communicating. Don't confuse giving in with communicating. They don't need 100 bucks. They don't need, you know, a night wherever or just to be left alone in their room, whatever it is. That, that's not communication. That's surrender. Don't surrender. But never stop communicating. It's never time to stop. It's never time to be unwilling to talk. It's, it's time to talk under healthy uh, circumstances. It's time to talk with, with healthy boundaries. But it's never not time to talk. Do you feel that the, the family members should be constantly reaching out to the person who they're worried about, concerned about, or do they wait for that person to come to them? I think that things get really difficult for families, and they've been through so much. A lot of times, I think so much of that is the nature of your relationship. My wife and my mother reached out to me all the time, checked in with me all the time. Had my father done that, I would have thought something was up because he did not check in with me <laughs> years at a time. That would have been that would have upset the apple cart. That would have been you know just. There's more than I was willing to trust. That wouldn't have helped you. No. So it depends on the nature of your relationship. But I don't think that a lack of communication has helped very often. I think it's so uh, hard for families, you know, to know what how to navigate this. Well, What is the commu- right thing to do? And communication without expectation. Communi- you're not going to win. <laughs> you're not going to call and have them and, and they're going to say, you know, you're right. Today's the day. That's that's not that's not the outcome of your communication. Communication that you love them, that you recognize they're not getting what they want from life right now, and that when they want to make a change, you're there to help. You're not there to help them do what they're doing. You're not there for that. To you're, enable them, no. right? So, which people people do for a while, I think, parents especially. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we enable the. We enable them when they're not even addicts and they're just not doing their homework. I mean, <laughs> especially, yeah, helicopter parents, right? Yeah. yeah. So, just don't stop talking, and 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 don't beat yourself up for the content of what you do or don't say. That's not the question. The question is, did you say? Not what did you say. Just did you? Did you? Did you? Did you say, hey, I love you. How do we need to change as a society from what you see every day and what you've been through in terms of how we view addiction and how we treat it from the people suffering from it? If you could wave a magic wand. Well, if we were going to live in John land, I would eliminate the word they and those. Well, you know, they, you know, those people. No. Well, you know, we. And and I don't just mean we because I'm an addict and alcoholic. I mean we because we're human beings. We're all connected. We would do well to consider that there are people who cannot do what we think is usual. 90% of people can drink all they want. You know, they'll be hungover, but it's not going to ruin their the rest of their life. But 10% of us can't. You know, so... I had a very well-meaning friend of mine ask me very recently, so when do you think you will drink again? (laughs) (laughs) They clearly don't understand. Clearly, we've miscommunicated the fact that this is a disease. People don't believe it's a disease. People believe it's it's a character character flaw. flaw. A moral moral failing, one or the other. Yeah. Well, yeah, and the lubrication that leads to even better moral failings. I would change that. An inability to respond to the to the dominant social lubricant um, in a socially acceptable or personally survivable way. Well, and it's even gotten is, more reinforced in society. Drinking, especially, you know, well, drinking. But now, you know, when I look now at, at all the states that are legalizing THC, and you know, now we have this thing called California sober, which is, well, I don't drink anymore, but I'm high all the time. 
So Demi Lovato, I think that's what she said. I'm not using heroin, but I still smoke weed. Yeah. No. And and, and I'm 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 too narrow for that. In your opinion, then you're still using a substance. I'm too narrow for that because the the whole object of life is to feel. That's the object. What makes us different than everything than every other being or creature is we feel. The whole object is to feel affection, accomplishment, strength, sorrow, sadness, whatever it is. What is going on in our society where the number one goal is not to be essentially human? What is, why is the number one goal to take away the most beautiful thing about us, our capacity to feel? Because you don't, you know, there are zero drugs that just take away anxiety. It, it, it's, it, none of them are, are one-dimensional. If I can't feel anxiety, I've, I've lost the capacity to feel love. Because, and because these things flood the brain. They're not discriminate, right? They're indiscriminate, yeah. yeah. And so I think that as a society, we should question aggressively why we're dehumanizing ourselves. Why would we want to lessen or belittle our ability to love someone? And I think um, if you look at the world today, you know, and the way that drinking went up during the pandemic and I just think if you look at everything that's been going on with the pandemic and with uh, racial tensions and with Afghanistan, I mean, you name it, this world we live in, it feels crazier than ever. It feels more uncertain. It feels like we are on shaky ground. So you can understand why more people are gravitating towards something that calms them down. It makes perfect sense. But it's not healthy. It's not going to help you in the long run. But making sense doesn't make it right and it doesn't make it helpful because now you know, that's the same sort of isolation that catalyzed my addiction if you isolate yourself from what's going on in the world and I, and I admit it you know I can't do that casually you know I can't have one M&M much less one beer um, so I don't I don't have those solutions I don't have that cure for my anxiety I can't watch the evening news and then, you know, split a six-pack and, and feel better about it. I don't have that. I'm just pretty sure that we're better off with all our feelings, using our intellectual power to, to understand the ways our feelings are driving us, positively or negatively, so that we can continue to communicate with people in a loving way and in a way that, that's actually beneficial. Well, I am just uh, so appreciative of everything that you're doing and what Tallgrass is doing, and for sharing your story. I know we don't have all the solutions in a little under an hour <laughs> for for everybody, but it is, I think, having the conversation is so important. Like we talked about 1973, there was no conversation about this is what's going on, and now it's 2021, and we need to actually have a conversation about there's a massive drug problem, and it's not those people. 10% of the population has an alcohol problem, and that 10% is pretty evenly spread across all demographics. People you know at work are struggling. People you know at church are struggling. People in your neighborhood. People you would never guess. People you would never, ever guess. Yes. That happened just the other day. A friend of mine I found out, and I would never have known. You know, and I'm shouting this from the rooftops. So people are still keeping it secret because of the shame involved, which is what we're trying to stop, right? You know, I, I was talking to a longtime guy who's been in recovery for 33 years, and he said, what are you doing? I said, pardon me? He said, you're telling people. I said, yes. He said, well, that's going to ruin your career. That's going to ruin your life. I mean, people will ostracize you. And that was when I was still a financial advisor. But I'd just spoken at, at a, an awareness thing. And, and he wasn't wrong. You know, when I was a financial advisor, I had some people, I had, I had clients who found out that I'm in 12-step recovery. And they skedaddled. Really? Um, I had other clients who thought that was the greatest thing ever and were very complimentary. The vast majority of my clients couldn't have cared less. It just wasn't, you know, sometimes they'd ask, you know, well, are you going to fall off? (laughs) No? Okay, then. If you do fall off, will you tell us? Um, (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Well, I suppose, you know, from the standpoint of a guy who hasn't fallen off, of course I will. From the standpoint of a guy who did fall off, I don't know. Um, And thank God I didn't fall off. So it's still, the stigma still exists. For sure. And when I went public with my daughter's story, I, I expected a lot of negative feedback, right? And I mostly, I would say, like, I think in our, our minds as human beings, we, we, we tend to 
obsess on the negative, uh, but I would say about 98% positive, very supportive, understanding. But even today, I still get comments like, just the other day, someone said to me, oh, you must have been too busy working to know what was going on with your daughter because I'm a mom who works outside of the home. I said, well, no, I, I, I knew we were having issues and we were trying to get her help. But so there is still that idea that well, somehow, and that somehow, I don't know, it's, it's just still people don't truly understand the disease. And they don't always accept it as, as a disease of the brain either. No, and they, and they don't accept that if you loved someone enough, you would have fixed it. They don't, that's what they think. They don't accept that, that it's actually not in your hands. They don't accept that you couldn't have known. You know, I, I, I'm an addict. An alcoholic. I've been in recovery for 23 years. <laughs> years ago, one of my kids got in some trouble, and I was thunderstruck. Like you of all people should have and, known. And uh, you would think so. <laughs> yeah. And of course, then hindsight kicks in, and I'm like, oh yeah, all these things. But in the in that moment, I, I was completely at a loss. So, and that says someone who's you know, well, I'd been I'd been in Tallgrass about three months at the time. So I was like, well, thanks for the street cred, buddy. Um, you know, now I, now I get to fight the struggle on all sides. But So you've had it from that perspective as a parent, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. But the idea that, that parents are somehow at fault is unfair and unrealistic. When I, when, whenever I hear someone casting about for blame, I just think that they're early in their own recovery. If you're casting about for blame, because the problem with blame is blame circumvents accountability. And it's accountability that makes us sober. You know, we accept accountability, and that accountability drives us to understand and and work through our fear, shame, and guilt. And because of that accountability to that process and our accountability to being honest, then we get the rewards and the promises. And how's your son doing today? My son is sober today. That's great. And and 100% accountable for his own actions, to the point where he thinks he's funny about it sometimes. I mean, just... And so he's doing well, doing spectacularly well. But yeah, his dad was clueless. The thing his dad did right was he didn't stop talking to him. I tried not to verbalize my "oh, this is about me" response <laughs> because I, you know, here I'm, I'm now leading a recovery organization, and and you'd think I had all my ducks in a row, but no. Well, we don't control um, other human beings. That's for sure. But obviously, you know, he could have thought about that a little more which is an irrational and self-serving thing to think as a parent, but I sure did for a second. I think it's a normal thing to think. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, how could he not know the impact this would have? But having said that, I was incredibly careful to not stop communicating, incredibly careful to not have it be about blame. And his mother, who knows way more about dealing with an addict than I do, you know, took the lead. The key is, is to offer accountability, not fault. And with that, then the addict and alcoholic can find the honesty to move into the recovery community and find joy like they've never known. Well, on that hopeful note, we will end this podcast. And thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it, Angela. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining me for this latest edition of Grieving Out Loud. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider giving a positive review. Wishing you faith, hope, and courage.